Let me describe this video to you. An old woman is walking along a dirt road. We view her from above, looking down like an omnipotent satellite. The footage is shot from a drone. Suddenly, a voice booms out. She's startled and looks up straight into the camera. She checks around her to see if anyone else is witnessing this event. Yes, auntie, this drone is speaking to you. She smiles, seemingly tickled by this novel experience. You shouldn't walk around without a mask, says the voice. Go home. Her smile fades. She turns around and, glancing back at the drone that's filming her, ambles back the way she came. That was back in February in China. The steadily worsening coronavirus was beginning to push all other news aside. In China, ground zero for the virus, things were serious. The government had implemented strict rules, the likes of which have since become familiar to many countries around the world, including here in Australia. Drones proved an effective way to keep people under surveillance, hardly unusual in China. But when Melbourne entered its long second lockdown, the Victorian authorities said they too would begin using drones to make sure citizens adhered to their new restrictions. Drones. They seem to be everywhere these days, enthusiastically embraced by amateur aviators and selfie takers. But their power is much greater than that. That's why conservationists have applied them in novel and influential ways. It's also why governments and police forces have done the same. As with so many of the innovations of our tech age, we've hastily accepted the thrills of a new toy without questioning what we may be giving up in the process. You're listening to Think Digital Futures. I'm Dan Butler. So drones as a technology have a kind of dual history. They have a history in the military side of things and they have a history in the civilian space. This is Michael Richardson. I'm a senior research fellow at the University of New South Wales in the School of Arts and Media. Contrary to their later applications, drones had a pretty modest job when they first began being used in the earlier part of last century. In the military space, drones arrived in fits and starts. They actually began as targets. So that's actually where the name drone comes from. Not as many people think from the sound, but from the idea of a bee without a sting, a target that could be shot down um, for target practice. Though there were attempts through the decades to give them greater powers, it wasn't until the 1990s that the military began utilising them seriously. And the reason they took off in the 1990s was in part due to an Israeli aeronautical engineer named Abraham Karim. And Abraham Karim happened to be a light glider enthusiast, like a remote-controlled airplane enthusiast. And so he brought what he knew about gliders and remote-control airplanes to the construction of military drones. And that's actually why the Predator and Reaper drones have such a weird, bulbous look with the very light spindly legs and, and broad curved wings. The new designs were an improvement on previous attempts, and crashes were less frequent. The military promptly utilised them in the conflict of the era. So in the 1990s, the predators were first flown um, over the Balkans uh, during this, a series of wars there and, and were 
most heavily used over Kosovo in the late 1990s as um, intelligence surveillance and reconnaissance devices. So they were actually just recording images. And it wasn't until after 9-11 and the war in Afghanistan that the US decided to try to put a weapon onto the drones. These machines we in the West may know from news reports. Many in the Arab world would have first-hand experience. The American military, particularly under Obama, have steadily increased their use in warfare and espionage for years. But then on the on the more civilian side, um, drones as we know them in the civilian space tend not to be gliders. They tend to be uh, quadcopters. And there the arrival of, of that technology is really about um, the emergence of, of cheap controllers and uh, the kinds of autonomous software that can actually manage to keep a drone in the air. So even a little drone that has four little propellers, that requires some fairly complicated software to deal with the buffeting of winds and and to respond to, to directional inputs and so on. So that was more of a software problem on the civilian side. And today we're actually seeing a lot of movement from the civilian drone technologies into military drone technologies because the civilian world has been more effective at autopiloting and obstacle um, detection and so on. If you've seen a civilian drone, and these days they seem hard to avoid in outdoor spaces, you can witness the sophistication of this technology for yourself. Decked with four propellers, they have incredible stability and can function ever further from the person holding the controls. There's a pretty significant outcome from the development of this technology. Technological innovation often opens doors. Drones give us access to the skies. Drones have certainly democratised airspace in a way that no other technology has before. The capacity for you or I to fly a small drone up into the sky and obtain that aerial view is a startlingly new thing. This is not something that people have been able to do uh, really at any point in history. We could, I suppose, have gone up in a hot air balloon, but that would require significant expertise and money and equipment and so on. Just as often, that same technological innovation is reduced to pretty mundane functions, selfies and the like. There are actually some really positive uses um, in, in the civilian world. So one might be wildlife conservation. Drones could be can be used to monitor deforestation, damage to habitats, and even to monitor wild animal populations. So my name's Michael Blumenstein. I'm the Associate Dean for Research Strategy and Management in the Faculty of Engineering and IT at UTS. Uh, the, the lab that I'm sort of the co-director of with a colleague of mine is called the Intelligent Drone Lab. So yeah, there's, there's quite a wide variety of applications in the drone space. Michael and his team have worked on several applications in the burgeoning field, from the more traditional military developments to working on saving lives on beaches. So probably the, the most well-known project that we're doing there uh, in the Intelligent Drone Lab is um, sort of the shark spotter technology, a uh, technology that uh, took a, a drone and a, and a drone-mounted camera, which then was uh, used to survey beaches and oceans uh, to detect sharks and other marine life automatically. 
using um, uh, computer vision and artificial intelligence technology. The AI can distinguish between all manner of sea creatures, and most importantly, when a shark is near a swimmer. Michael says the accuracy is a vast improvement on humans spotting sharks. Drone video streamed into via camera that then gets looked at by an AI to determine whether it's a shark or not, or a crocodile or not, um, still around the 90% mark. So I suppose um, if you think about it, people can say, okay, what does that mean, 90%? Um, so you spot it 90% of the time. Uh, what happens to the other 10%? Well, to put things in perspective, if you look at what surveillance uh, for, for marine life is usually um, executed by, which is usually a helicopter and someone sitting in it with a pair of binoculars, the accuracy of that is around 25%. So when you look at the 90% mark uh, and above, we're, we're really looking at, at a pretty high success rate compared to conventional means. Another one of their projects allows lifesavers to utilise drones to save people caught in rips. Lifesavers can fly the drones over the water and drop an inflatable raft over the people in trouble. In fact, on its first day, the Little Ripper drone saved two swimmers caught in the swell at Lennox Head. It's a team effort between the drone, the AI and the lifeguard. If we can augment that experience for them and they are still controlling the drone but getting that feedback from the AI to say where there are potential issues, that's what we want to do. We want to keep the human in the loop um, until until there's uh, everyone's comfortable with looking at a, an alternative. If you're a person who grumbles every time a drone flies overhead at the beach, you may be less antagonistic if that drone were suddenly throwing you a lifeline, literally. These are just some of the positive applications that the tech offers. And then on the uh, more uh, democratic side of things, I suppose, drones can be really useful in providing a counter view for civil protest. A good example would be the various protests that we've seen in Hong Kong over the last half dozen years or so. And in many of those protests, drones were flown by protesters in the sky in order to show both the size of the crowds and the location of police forces that might be coming to break up uh, groups. So those drones uh, can be really helpful as tools of resistance against state control and oppression. The problem is that police have access typically to better, faster and more powerful drones. And I think this question of who owns the air is one that is prompted by the drone. And it is also one that will become increasingly important to people in civil society, to protesters, to artists, and perhaps just to the public in general, because we now have these technologies that we can use and also that police can use to control airspace and to use that airspace to potentially control or monitor populations. Coming up after the break, who owns the air? The problem is that with that revolutionary access to the skies that drones give us, we're suddenly in uncharted territory, almost literally. There's a gap in legislation and public awareness, and police forces are taking advantage of it. So we've seen this with all sorts of technologies. You know, when 
people got hardwire phones, um, there was a real uh, jump in police capability and wiretapping. Now with mobiles, uh, law enforcement around the world seek access, uh, you know, not just to um, the content, but also the metadata and activity logs. It, it's just a, it, it's sort of a cat and mouse game. So they always try to chase the, the newest thing. And, and drones just happen to be um, one of those sort of technologies that have appeared. You can attach a video camera or a static camera to them. Um, and so that, that sounds like a, that sounds like a good deal <laughs> for them. Lucy Kraulsova is the Program and Partnership Director at Digital Rights Watch, a group that observes civil liberties infringements facilitated by technology. She says drones have shifted the goalposts of where police are allowed to watch us. Um, so obviously it, it's concerning because it really, um, it doesn't respect the sort of barrier between public and private spaces that, for instance, um, you know, CCTV cameras may have. Um, those are, you know, in public spaces or, or sort of in marked uh, private spaces. Um, drones really breach, I think, uh, between what we perceive those spaces to be that, you know, they can fly over your fence and, and, and there's suddenly footage of you. Uh, your activity in your home or backyard. When Melbourne entered its long, hard second lockdown, Victoria Police announced they would be using drones to surveil people's behaviour and enforce restrictions. Just last month, Assistant Commissioner Luke Cornelius had this to say. Well, uh, we've been using drones for some time now. First and foremost, drones are used to give us situational awareness in places of public gathering. Uh, So typically I'm talking about beaches, I'm talking about parks. Um, it gives us real-time appreciation of crowd numbers, crowd behaviour, and it allows us to uh, adopt policing tactics which are most appropriate to ensuring that what's occurring at that location remains COVID safe. We are not going to have drones hovering above pizza ovens in people's backyards. Uh, can I be clear about that? However, police were already pushing the boundaries of surveillance last year. Drones were used to police beaches which authorities said were more prone to violence. So next time you're lying by the sea and you hear that familiar drone, is the pilot a kid, a lifesaver or a cop watching you? The ambiguity is part of the problem. So, so that sort of um, that sort of check-in with yourself and, and with your own perception of that space just doesn't exist for drones um, because you you don't know and they can follow, you know, you don't know when a drone is around. If you do notice it, you don't know where that space where you can go, where you aren't watched, begins and ends. And so it just poses a real different threat environment for most people. The power of technology these days comes in part from the layering of that technology. Drones give us access to the skies. Combine that with artificial intelligence, and then you have a mobile identifying device, useful for spotting sharks, certainly, but just as handy if you're looking for a person. Facial recognition technology is on the verge of being introduced nationwide in this country. And I think one of the reasons why it's so important is because facial recognition is a soft, is a type of technology that can be moved across different kinds of devices and different kinds of uses. And drones are one of the more concerning uses to my mind because unlike, say, facial recognition when you walk into a government building, um, a drone will recognise your face without you necessarily having to, to do anything. So we could imagine, for instance, drones flying over um, neighbourhoods within Sydney or Melbourne that are um, 
you know, full of uh, different minority minority groups or um, or religious groups that are already uh, marginalised and discriminated against within society, and people are being tracked and catalogued and their movements monitored um, for no good reason whatsoever. It is an unfortunate truth that any danger presented by creeping capabilities by authorities overstepping their bounds are disproportionately felt by already marginalised groups. Often they are test cases or simply scapegoats. Facial recognition presents unique dangers to them. If it was just for catching criminals, I think it would be great. But there's just a real trove of people, um, you know, who worry, um, who who worry about their location being exposed like that. And I don't think we've thought nearly enough about them, you know, be it migrants or asylum seekers, political dissidents from other countries, um, or uh, domestic violence victims who have been relocated, who have fled, um, even people who are in uh, witness protection or anything like that. You know, those the system captures all of those people. Um, so I guess... <laughs> That's the sort of almost dystopian um, sort of picture, but there's really no escape. There's no opt-out. Authorities have been continually pushing the boundaries of what is acceptable in terms of surveilling citizens for decades in this country. Drones and the software that comes with them present another shift, and a violent one. When it comes to questions of surveillance, there's a common refrain repeated by authorities and lots of citizens. If you've nothing to hide, you've nothing to fear. But the truth is more complex than that. It's really about our concept of what is private and public. Um, And the notion that everything about me can be public because it's not criminal is flawed. Um, I have a right to hide things Um, They don't necessarily have to be criminal activity, um, but things that, uh, you know, are private, whether that's um, my family status or or medical uh, issues. Different people have different conceptions around what they want in the sort of public marketplace. And so I think the fact that the majority of the population has bought into I have nothing to hide, so I have nothing to fear, I think that's tragic. Thanks for listening to Think Digital Futures. This episode was made in the studios of 2SCR Radio here in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation. It was made with the assistance of the University of Technology, Sydney. You can subscribe to Think Digital wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Dan Butler. Till next time. Music